Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End, although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. Cheeseman Park is located in central Denver, southeast of downtown. The park has inexact borders, framed by three sides of private residences, and is located at the center of Cheeseman Park neighborhood. Located between Humboldt Street on the west side, Ray Street along with the Denver Botanic Garden on the east, 13th Avenue on the north, and 8th Avenue on the south. The park consists of 80 acres of land and 1,880 trees planted from 57 different species. Some include groves of American linden, American elm, black walnut, and green ash located in the western section of the park. Some large conifers include Colorado blue spruce and Douglas fir. In the late 19th century, the land that is now known as Cheeseman Park was known then as Prospect Hill Cemetery. The land also includes the Denver Botanic Garden and Congress Park further east today. The long-disused cemetery was converted into a park in 1907 after city planners felt that converting the cemetery into a park would be more accommodating to their developing city. The park was originally named for the U.S. Congress, who originally gave permission to convert the cemetery into a park in the first place. The park would be renamed to Cheeseman Park after a Denver pioneer, Walter Cheeseman, whose family donated money for a neoclassical pavilion on the eastern side of the park shortly after his death. The cemetery opened in 1858, with the very first burial occurring the next year. In 1872, the U.S. government determined that the land that the cemetery sat on was actually federal land, and that it was deeded to the U.S. government in 1860 by a treaty with the Arapaho people, a Native American tribe historically living on the plains of Colorado and Wyoming. The U.S. government then offers the land to the city of Denver. They buy the land for $200. Today, the park is formally remembered as Mount Prospect Cemetery, even though it was renamed to Denver City Cemetery in 1873. As time went on, different parts of the cemetery would be designated for different types of groups, sections being grouped by religion, ethnicity, and fraternal organizations. Some sections were well-maintained by group members or their descendants, while other sections were neglected. In 1875, 20 acres of cemetery was sold to an organization that kept the land well-maintained while many sections continued to go neglected. By the late 1880s, the cemetery was rarely used and in disrepair. It kind of becomes an embarrassment to a fast-developing city. Real estate developers would soon lobby to turn the property into a park for everyone to enjoy instead of a neglected, unused cemetery. A Colorado senator would allow the cemetery to be converted to a park, on January 25, 1890, Congress will authorize the city to vacate the ground of Mount Prospect Cemetery and in turn the park is named Congress Park. Vacate. Well, I think we know where this is going. What does one vacate from a cemetery? Hmm. The families that could afford the transfer started to do just that. 
whether it be to other cemeteries across the city or across the state, or even back to their homeland, since many buried were transplants from other countries. The east section was dedicated mostly to Roman Catholic graves, which consisted of 40 acres. Proving to be too difficult to move the bodies from the section, it was sold to the archdiocese and named Mount Calvary Cemetery. Ninety days quickly turns into a few years of waiting for the bodies to be removed, but very few were removed. More than 5,000 were unclaimed at this time. The bodies were believed to be of criminals, vagrants, and the poor and unwanted souls. In 1893, the city of Denver, growing tired of waiting, contracts the services of an undertaker to remove the rest of the remains. The contract would state that the undertaker would remove the bodies while providing a fresh coffin to preserve the remains and transferring them to another cemetery at the cost of $1.90 per transfer. On March 14, 1893, the undertaker begins the work of extracting the remaining bodies from the park grounds to an audience. Much media stomped in and out trying to get a story to convey to the public. Gawkers would also be present, citizens obviously curious as to what was taking place. For the first few days, things went as planned. But things will turn very quickly. The undertaker, unsatisfied with the profit of the job at hand, finds a way to widen his profit margin, so to speak. The shameless undertaker promising fresh coffins for transfer did that, but then decided to save money and earn more, starting to use child-sized coffins, measuring three and a half feet long, instead of full-sized coffins. One account states this was only because of a mining accident in the state of Utah, causing a shortage of supplies to make the proper coffin sizes. The undertaker began hacking up the bodies to make them fit in the undersided coffins. Body parts and bones were literally laying everywhere in a disorganized mess for all to see, contributing to these scavenger souvenir hunters trying to grab and gather whatever coffin treasures they could. On March 19, 1893, a newspaper would report on the situation with the headline, The Work of Ghouls. The paper covers the unscrupulous practices of the undertaker that were out for every onlooker to witness, from taking intact bodies and hacking them to pieces to fit into the child-sized coffins, to being confronted by a representative of the health department that wielded no consequences. The fact of the matter is, it was no secret as to what was going on. And the only reason I say no consequences is because although there seems to be an investigation that follows, no solution comes to play. So what does this tell us? Coffins holding remains that have been exposed to onlookers as well as the elements? Some graves were never even reached. No one else is ever contracted to remove and preserve the remaining bodies and remains. In 1894, a temporary border is placed around the cemetery. Preparation for the cemetery turned park in full force. Unfortunately, some of the graves that were left open won't even be filled until 1902. The park isn't deemed ready until 1907, with its beautiful planted shrubs and groves of trees. Enter the Conspiracy Corner.
So it just seems like the city wanted to be done with his ugly business. The desecration of the bodies, in full view of, well, everyone, was indeed witnessed. Why is it that not all the graves were even reached? Why didn't they even try, though? Seems to me that if you decide to plan on converting a cemetery into a park that people can enjoy, wouldn't it be smart to, well, I don't know, remove all the bodies? Not only does this park seem to be haunted by restless souls, but tainted by the stigma of unscrupulous practices. On the surface, while visiting the park, you may not know this, but if you ever do any research, it's enough to make your stomach turn. This is such a heartless story of history to me. It has the stain of those souls buried there. Simply didn't matter. They were wronged in death to an uncaring audience. Next time in Denver, I'll be out to Cheeseman Park. My hope is that no one has to live in fear, ever. As always, I will never give up and read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to wikipedia.org. Thanks so much for listening. I am Rachel Vallisnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>